1857, the Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Manhattan was struggling. It was situated during a time of financial crisis in New York City that touched many of its one million people at the time. The church called a new missionary to the neighborhood, Jeremiah Lanfear. Jeremiah was overwhelmed by the need of the neighborhood, and he just asked the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? Well, it seemed that God gave Jeremiah no clear direction, so he decided to hold a lunchtime prayer meeting at the church. For the first 20 minutes, Jeremiah prayed for himself, by himself, and by the end of the hour, six other people joined him. The following week, 20 people gathered for prayer. And the week after that, 30 people gathered for prayer. Soon, the building was full. And additional uh, churches and theaters even became prayer sites. The once downtrodden businessmen now flooded churches across New York City during their lunch hours. And within six months, 50,000 people were praying every day during their lunch hours in New York City. This is spectacular, isn't it? But then you read an account of what was known as the New York City Revival of 1858. And the prayers they prayed seemed just utterly normal, utterly simple, even repetitive. You know, a wife, for example, prayed for her husband. He turns up at the next day's meeting, saved, converted. A mother prays for her two distant children who are in cities far away. That very day, those children are drawn to a church where they come to know Christ. Every day, it was just a simple routine. They would sing a hymn, they would give their requests, they would pray, and they would promptly end at one o'clock. Just one hour, very simple. You read this extraordinary account and you're just, you're waiting for some kind of secret in prayer, but you never get one. You see, it happened in seemingly ordinary ways. Prayers were made and prayers were answered. In his letter full of calls to action, James closes with a call to pray. And he calls to pray in the context of a church fellowship. Now, prayer is an act that seems utterly ordinary, normal, unimpressive. And as we read the closing passage of James, we, we see that James doesn't really deny this. But prayer, he says, is also necessary, powerful, in a way we show Christ's love for his people. We're going to close out the last section of James. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack, you'll find it on page 1013. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. I'm going to summarize this passage, kind of everything that we'll cover today. In one statement, we say this. We pray and care with bold confidence, honest awareness, and loving hearts. Bold confidence, honest awareness, and loving hearts. Here's how we're going to go forward in our time together this morning. We're first going to talk about what James isn't talking about. And then we're going to unpack four traits of the kind of prayer and care that James does talk about. All right, so first, what is James not talking about? My backyard is an adventure to cut. (laughs) When you ride over it, it feels like a rodeo and you are hanging on for dear life. If you play football on it and you run for the ball, you are bound to trip and maybe get a sprained ankle at some point. The terrain being full of dips and patches and hidden drops means you can't cover ground carelessly. You go too fast on the mower, you might actually catch some air. (laughs) (laughs) Run too fast and you will trip. This is a passage where we have to be careful how fast we go through it. Have to be careful because if we speed too quickly ahead, we are bound to trip. And it won't be the fault of the passage, it will be our fault. So the reason we're starting with what James is not saying is because many take this passage and go through it carelessly. So what does James not say when he's talking about this kind of prayer and care? We're going to cover three of the biggest pitfalls just right at the beginning. First, James is not talking about the sacrament of extreme unction or last rites as practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would use uh, this set of verses to support this practice. This practice involves a priest's duty to anoint with oil a person who is dying, to remove any remnant of sin and give strength to that person's soul. Healing in this situation is only considered a possibility. Now we see where they get some of that from this passage. You know, he talks about anointing. He talks about work of elders. James, what James talks about anointing with oil in verse 14, um, the practice of extreme unction just kind of lacks basis in what James actually says. James calls for anointing for any sickness, not just sickness that leads to death. Further, when you consider how oil is used in the Bible, by and large, it is not the engine through which God brings healing. Oil is a symbolic use. It's a symbol It's a way to symbolize that a person or an object is set apart for God's use and God's service. And so here, I think that's similarly what's going on. James calls for oil here so that elders can show that a particular person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. Symbol of being set apart. But even even more than that, this uh, sacrament of last rites, uh, it 
sets up a dependence on priests that isn't warranted by what James says. So yes, James calls for elders in the church to take a special role. But you know what? He also talks about everybody else praying and confessing their sins. He talks about the ministry of the church at large. Really, the basis of the doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, not just of some believers. And so um, it's not the oil that heals. It is not the elders who heal. You see in verse 15, who is the one who heals, who raises up? It is the Lord who does that. So here's one of the pitfalls people might fall into. Second, James is not talking about setting up some kind of healing ministry. A, he's not talking about faith healers or a name it and claim it theology you might see on the Trinity Broadcasting Network on television. James talks about healing with an air of certainty, yes. You notice he says, for example, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. But this leads some people to say that if someone isn't healed, then it must mean that the person didn't have enough faith. It leads some to say that. Now, we're going to talk more about that soon. But if we believe in that, then we believe ultimately that we're saved by the strength of our faith rather than the object of our faith. That is not what the Bible teaches Faith, even as small as a mustard seed, if it's placed in the right object, will save. Jesus saves us, not our faith. So this, this doctrine, this teaching, healing that only comes if you have enough faith, that can do big damage to a person who is genuinely a Christian, but for who for some reason God has chosen not to heal them. You know, there's several examples throughout the Bible we're going to talk about later. And it's also worth noting here that the healing James talks about does not come at a big rally where seed money is given. It's given in a person's home, this healing. It's the sick person who calls for it, not the elders who call for them. And they don't call for special faith healers. This sick person calls for simple, regular elders of the church. So that's another pitfall, something that James is not talking about. But number three, James is not talking about healing that is only spiritual. James is not talking about healing that is only spiritual. So yes, James, we see he will mention spiritual restoration. He will mention receiving forgiveness. But if that's all he wanted to talk about, he could have done so in a much, much clearer way. Now, there are some who will point out that the words like sick and the words uh, such as the one for saved, it can be used and they are used in spiritual contexts. But the elders praying over a person seems to imply that this person is bedridden. But what's more than that, that you see that word raise up? I believe it's in verse 15. That word raise up is used 160 times in the New Testament. And overwhelmingly used, as in each time it's used, it refers to something physical. A person getting up or waking up. And you notice also James doesn't say sin is necessarily present in this person who's being healed. So yes, we should nuance this. We're going to nuance this more. Going to kind of qualify this certainty of healing. 
We should say God spiritually saves and heals people. We should say that God moves more often in the providential than the exceptional, meaning God moves more in ordinary ways than through miracles. And we should say that miracles in the Bible are generally clustered together around major turning points in God's plan to save his people. But having said all that, we would have to do some big time stretching with this passage to say that James does not talk about physical healing. So knowing some ways we could trip through this passage, we can ask what James is saying. What kind of prayer and care is James calling for? So I'll give four different traits. First trait, he calls for a kind of prayer and care that comes in all seasons. It comes in all seasons. I had a friend in school who, when he did not study for a test, particularly a uh, multiple choice test, he would just give the same uh, answer for each uh, question. He would mark C, the whole test. And what was infuriating is that sometimes my friend would get a passing grade <laughs> by doing this. So at the beginning of his closing session, you see that James asks a couple of different questions. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? Friends, this time it's for real. We don't have to worry. We can give the same answer to each one of these questions. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? What should we do? Pray. Pray. We pray to God when we are suffering. Because we believe God sees we believe God can do something. We believe God is in control. We believe God hears us. We believe God acts. In suffering, we believe God's invitations to come to him. We remember places like Psalm 147, that God is near the brokenhearted. We remember a place like 1 Peter 5, where God invites us to cast all of our cares on him, for he cares for us. We pray when it's hard because we know that's what we should do. We pray even when it takes everything in us to pray. Isn't it fitting that James talks about prayer right on the heels of talking about patience? We don't just pray then. We pray when we're cheerful because God is the source of all life and joy. Many of us know Philippians chapter 4 very well. The Apostle Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. He also says that even when we're anxious, we can pray about it in such a way that still shows we are thankful to God. In every situation, every season, there is some reason to rejoice in and thank God. And we pray, friends, when we're sick. We pray when we're sick because we believe in the God who makes the blind see. The God who makes the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead live. We believe in God from whom every good and perfect gift comes, including the gifts of medicine and treatment and doctors. These are gifts from God's hand. The way James opens this closing section reminds us that there is no time in our lives 
when God does not call us to draw near to himself. No time in our lives. But you know, each one of these times carries within itself a certain temptation not to draw near to God, a certain temptation not to pray. Think of suffering. Suffering can bring bitterness. It can bring complaints, just flat-out fatigue, which in turn may lead us to avoid pursuing the Lord intentionally. We think of good times, even normal times, brings the temptation to complacency, to a false sense that we have everything together by ourselves, which leads to a dryless or an absent prayer life. Forgetting, when we, forgetting God when we feel like we're okay on our own. Brothers and sisters, let's tell ourselves right now, just from verse 13, let's tell ourselves right now that it is always right to pray. It is always right to pray. James calls for a kind of prayer that is constant, that comes in all seasons. The old pastor, J.C. Ryle, in his short book, A Call to Prayer, puts it like this. It's a little bit longer of a quote, so bear with me. I'll try to explain it because he's an old dead guy who writes differently. (laughs) He says, I know that the Holy Spirit, who calls sinners from their evil ways, does in many instances lead them by very slow degrees to acquaintance with Christ. He says, I know God God grows people slowly over time. I understand that. But, he says, the eye of man can only judge by what it sees. I cannot call anyone justified until he believes. It means I can't say anyone is truly saved until they believe in Christ. And he says, I dare not say that anyone believes until he prays. I cannot understand a mute or a silent faith. The first act of faith will be to speak to God. Faith is to the soul what life is to the body. Prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How can a man live and not breathe? It's past my comprehension. And how can a man believe and not pray? It's past my comprehension too. Prayer should be like breathing. It's necessary all the time. Prayer is not like medicine, which is only necessary and the most perilous of times. Prayer should be like breathing, natural to how we live. But just because it's necessary and just because it's natural does not mean that it will come naturally, does it? The Bible tells us That our natural desire is not to get close to God, but to get as far away from God as we possibly can. Why else is it so hard to pray? Why else is it so hard to pray? It is not natural to us. It should be, though. But even though we know that sometimes there are moments, even even though we know it's necessary, even though we know that it should be natural, There are even some moments when people have to tell us to breathe, that we forget to breathe. And so here, there are moments we must tell ourselves, even though it's necessary and should come natural, that we must pray. We don't want to be those 
Friends, we do not want to be those who can talk about God, but cannot talk to God. Prayer that comes in all seasons. Second, James talks about a kind of prayer and care that is confident and bold. That is confident and bold. Pastor Sam Alberry tells a story about an airline's advertising campaign around Christmas time. Uh, they set up a virtual Santa uh, in the lounge where passengers wait to board. So when people scanned their boarding passes, a little Santa came up on the screen and asked them, what do you want for Christmas? You know, people played along. They typed in whatever they wanted. Uh, some people typed in, you know, HDTV. Uh, missed out on Black Friday, I guess. And uh, other people typed in, oh, I want new socks. Um, and what the passengers didn't know is that the employees from the airline went out to local malls and bought everything they asked for. And when they arrived at their destination, along with their luggage at baggage claim, came the gifts that they asked for. And, you know, of course, it's the Internet, so there was a videotape of it, and it went viral, and you see people are just elated and surprised. And then as you go away, you, you kind of start to think about it, and you wonder... Now, what is that guy who asks for new socks thinking about right now? <laughs> How much did he miss out on? You know, growing up, you may have heard your parents uh, respond to your back talk by saying, do you know who you're talking to? When we read James talking about prayer, and the power of prayer, when he says things like the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working, we can hear him ask the same kind of question just in a positive way. Do you know who you're talking to? You know, the story about the airport and Santa is, is not meant to say that God is like Santa. No, don't, don't hear me say that. It's to ask if we really knew who we are praying to, what he is able to do, what he promises to us, would we be so unenthusiastic when we pray? Pray as if God is real. Pray as if God is actually sovereign over everything. Pray as if God is the one who made everything and rules everything. From the stars to molecules. Pray, friends, as if Jesus really died and rose again. Pray as if the Spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead is actually at work in you. Pray as if God's promises are true. He promises to sustain you and to finish the work he started. You know, friends, we often view prayer as just a nice gesture. You know, when someone's going through something difficult, we tell them, you know, I will pray for you. That's something nice to say, um, but we don't say that as something that's actually significant and powerful. You know, what can I do for you? You know, you can just pray. Just pray? Really? We settle for prayers that are half-baked. Many of our prayers feel like the praying we do before a meal. You know, it's, it's something that we know we probably should do. It's respectable. It's not wrong to do. You know, no one ever really wants to do it. Everyone looks around, see who's going to be the one who does it. 
I have the privilege of being a pastor, so every meal I go to, I am the one who prays, which I'm fine with. We approach prayer like this. You know, no one wants to do it. No one really gets anything out of it. Is that the kind of experience we should have? Praying to God. God. And when it comes to any passage or sermon that talks about prayer, we might walk away feeling guilty about how much we don't pray and how lackluster our prayers are. And friends, I know it's true. We are guilty. But you know, James here, James writes here in such a way not just to make us feel guilty. He wants to encourage us in the task of prayer. As much as we might feel torn down, we have to see the Lord lifting us up. And one of the ways God has chosen to bring about healing is through our prayers. Just friends, think about that. Christian, God works through your prayers. So one of the ways he's chosen to accomplish his plan. Do not minimize it. So James wants to encourage us to bold and confident prayers. The many examples in Scripture encourage us to pray and to pray with this boldness and confidence. That's why James points to a guy like Elijah. You see how James describes Elijah in verse 17? He says, He was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, put it in our terms, he was a man who put on his pants one leg at a time. I don't know if he wore pants, but uh, Elijah was a person with weaknesses and sins and inconsistencies. But there were moments in Elijah's life when he was absolutely convinced that God Almighty hears and answers prayers. And Elijah prayed like it. His prayers changed the weather, or God changed the weather through his prayers. Be more accurate to say. We can think of other examples of ordinary people praying to the extraordinary God and God working powerfully through their prayers. Friends, read church history. Read church history and our forefathers and foremothers going before us in prayer. Read people like George Mueller. Many of you probably heard of him. British Christian who ran orphanages, who depended on God in prayer, literally minute by minute and hour by hour. Google George Mueller this afternoon. We think of John Knox from Scotland, the pastor reformer. Mary, queen of the Scots, said about John Knox. She said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than the armies of 10,000 men. All of these people, these examples inspire us to bold, boldness and confidence, not because of what they could do, but because of what God can do. But there's something else, real quick. We're talking about kinds of prayer and care that are bold and confident. There's something else about what James says that should encourage us to pray and pray with boldness and confidence. You see that phrase, it's James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, what does James mean when he says righteous person? Does he mean a person who is really good, who has earned the right for God to hear him? Well, it's not wrong to say that this would be a person who lives as God has called him to live. But you know, righteous, righteous is one of those Bible words that seems so far beyond the reach of us ordinary people, doesn't it? 
But then again, we remember Elijah, who was an ordinary man, but righteous. Why? Not because of what he did, but because he was right with God. Elijah had faith, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Elijah was given that status. He did not earn that status. That's how God has always worked. So friends, remember, James is writing as a servant of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing as one who holds faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Chapter 2, verse 1. Through faith in Jesus, God gives us, gives us the status of being righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Living the life we should have lived. Dying the death that we deserved. That's why, friends, we pray in Jesus' name. That's why. Because he is the one who gives us access to the Father. He is the one how we approach God. It's through his death for us, his perfect life given to us. Because we have Jesus, God counts us as righteous. Because we have Jesus, Hebrews 4.16, which we read earlier, says, we can draw near to God in prayer. How? With confidence. With confidence. Jesus has won for us righteousness, access to God. So to think about the privilege that this is. I've heard it explained like this. Who has the right to ask you for a glass of water at 2 o'clock in the morning? If I called you up at 2 in the morning, said, hey, can I get a glass of water? You would be very confused and might be angry, wouldn't you? <laughs> Friends, even if your spouse, if it's a bad day, your spouse asks you, hey, honey, can I get a glass of water right now? If it's been a bad day, it's like, no, you go get it yourself. I want to sleep. But if one of your children was knocking at your door and asked you for water in the middle of the night, what are you going to do? You're going to go get him water. That's what it is to be God's children. And that's what Jesus has won for us, that kind of intimate access to God. So friends, pray, knowing who you're talking to. Pray as if God really does work through prayer. Pray as if God has made a way for you to approach him in prayer through his son, Jesus Christ. All this should encourage us to pray and to pray boldly and to pray with confidence. Well, James talks about a kind of prayer and care that comes in all seasons, that is bold and confident, and thirdly, that is honest and humble. A kind of prayer and care that is honest and humble. Now, there are a couple of matters about which we need to be honest and humble when it comes to prayer and care. Those are sin and faith. We need to be honest and humble about sin and faith. Now, throughout this passage, whether it's verse 15 or 16 or 19 or 20. James talks about the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. We cannot process James's call to pray without taking into account the simple truth that undergirds this passage. We have sinned against God. God holds us accountable for our sin. 
and we need forgiveness. Those are very simple, basic Christianity 101 truths, but we cannot skip them. We have rebelled against the king and went off to serve other things in his place. Friend, maybe you are one who likes to just, you know, focus on the positives, uh, not really deal with the negatives, and I'm just a positive kind of person. Well, friend, if that's you, the Christianity might be hard for you. No, it probably will be hard for you. You cannot understand the positive without understanding the negative. We cannot understand the gospel without understanding sin. We cannot understand prayer without understanding that we do not automatically have access to God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says that if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his truth is not in us. We have to be honest about this, friends, because then we can be honest about the good news as well. And 1 John goes on to talk about, it says, although we have sinned, forgiveness is available to all through Jesus Christ the righteous, who died as a sacrifice and a substitute for our sins. So friends, we can be honest about how bad we are, and we can still be hopeful about how good and gracious God is in the gospel. Let's be honest about this. So talking about this situation here, James is writing about, we have to remember, he's been writing about divided hearts this whole letter. People who try to love God themselves and the world all at the same time. Divisions in their hearts. And so friends, hear me when I say, sickness is not always connected to sin. Sickness is not always connected to sin. Did you hear that? Sickness is not always connected to sin. For example, someone asked Jesus why a man was born blind. Whether it was his sin or his parents, John chapter 9. Jesus said it wasn't because of sin. It was so that God could get glory. Sickness is not always connected to sin. But sometimes sickness is connected to sin. Sometimes it is. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read about this warning every time we take the Lord's Supper. He says, there are some sick among you, some even who have died among you, because they dishonor the Lord and dishonor each other when they take the Lord's Supper. So, friends, this means, while it's not necessarily the case that the person who is sick that James writes about is sick because of their sin, it very well could be the case. This means sickness is an opportunity to examine ourselves, not to be paranoid, you came here with a, like a little cough this morning. You don't have to be paranoid about that. But sickness is an opportunity to be honest if there are any sins we have not been repenting of in our life. And that, might, that self-examination might be worthy of asking elders for help in that. Friend, God could be using sickness in your life to wake you up. And if you do not believe in Jesus especially, that is, a, that is a kindness to you. So we need to be honest and humble about the nature of sin. Also, looking at this passage, we need to be honest and humble about the nature of faith. 
When we read James saying, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, what does he mean? We've touched on it briefly already, but James cannot mean that if we have enough faith, then God will heal us. And if there is no healing, then there must be something wrong with our faith. This flies in the face of so much of of the Bible and especially the New Testament where it talks about faith and healing. Now, we've mentioned him already, but just think of uh, the Apostle Paul again, if you know his life. If there was anybody who is a faith-filled guy, it was the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, what does Paul pray for? That God would remove the thorn in his side. And God says no. God chooses not to. He doesn't say it was because Paul didn't have enough faith. Certainly, if anybody had enough faith, it would be the Apostle Paul. But then not just that example. Paul lived and dealt with sick people all the time. If Paul had this magic prayer of faith that he could use to heal anybody who was sick, certainly he would have used it. So Philippians chapter 2, he talks about Epaphroditus being sick, one of his friends. 2 Timothy 4. He talks about Trophimus, who he has left in a certain place, being sick. Why not just pray the prayer of faith and heal them? So, friends, James cannot mean that we need a certain amount of faith in order for God to heal. You know, some pastors and scholars read this passage and think that James is talking about a special kind of gift of faith that God gives to elders when they go and pray for a sick person, uh, where God somehow subjectively reveals to them that it's his will that he's going to save this person. Um, that, That could be a legitimate way to read this text. I think it's fuzzy. I don't think it's a satisfying solution. It says that there are some prayers we pray with faith and some prayers we pray without faith. But y'all, when we talk about prayer in general, if there is no faith in prayer, it's not prayer at all. Every prayer is a prayer of faith. So what, what is James talking about here? How can we be honest about the nature of faith? What James says here sounds a lot like what Jesus says about prayer, doesn't it? That's been one of James's patterns throughout his letter to echo his half-brother and his Lord. So, for example, Matthew 21, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, you know, Jesus spoke and it withered, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When we read statements from James or Jesus that talk about prayer with this absolute certainty, we have to keep in mind the greater context of the Bible. This is not the only times when the Bible talks about prayer. There's a reminder, we have to be careful about building an entire doctrine on one verse to the exclusion of other places and verses. So that context of what goes behind those, that attitude of certainty in prayer, that context is stated clearly in a place like 1 John 5. 1 John 5, again, where, where he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, 
he hears us. There's the operative phrase, according to his will. So friends, the more we are immersed in scripture, the more we know God's will. The more we know what God wants, what God desires. This should shape our prayers. Being filled with scripture, his word. We praise him for what you see in his word about him. We confess where we have sinned and fallen short in light of his word. We thank him for his grace in the gospel that we read in his word. And we ask him for what will bring him glory about the priorities that he values that we read about in his word according to his will. But y'all, there are some parts of God's will, God's plan, that we just don't know about. Some parts left hidden from us. Here then is where we need to be honest and humble about the nature of faith. We do not have faith in an outcome that God will do exactly what we ask him to do. That is not our faith. We have faith in a person. We have faith in God regardless of the outcome. That is the faith. The very nature of faith is to trust that God is in control, that God can do anything, but also that God knows better than we do. As one pastor puts it, God will either either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he does. So friends, we need to keep all this together. Our prayers should be bold and confident. We should know who we're praying to, the God of the universe. And we should know that he hears us when we cry out because there was one time that his son cried out and that he did not answer him. Jesus got the rejection that we deserve so that we would never be rejected by God, so that we could have access to the Father. We should know that our Father is eager and not stingy to do good things for his children. This is the attitude of hope and persistence in prayer, that God hears us, ordinary people, who come to him through the finished work of his Son. But we also need to be humble and uh, humble and honest, alongside bold and confident. We have to mesh these together. We have to keep all of these together. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. We do not know all that God will do. And he reserves the right to say no to our prayers. So we see the amazing examples of what God can do. But we are honest and humble enough to trust God that he knows better than we do. So friends, will you work toward this balance in your prayer life to having all of these traits in your prayer life? Boldness, confidence, honesty, humility. Did you see how that would be a vibrant, steady, dependent prayer life? Well, last trait. What kind of prayer and care does James talk about here? We said it's a kind that comes in all seasons a kind that is bold and confident, a kind that is honest and humble. Finally, last trait, it's a kind that comes from all people. It is a kind that comes from all people. 
Did you notice as we read this passage that there are several different individuals or groups uh, or just everybody in general praying in action? Several different individuals or groups. So verses 13 to 14, there are individuals praying. Verses 14 and 15, there are elders praying. Verses 16 and 19 and 20, everybody is in action. Confess your sins to one another. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering. So we talked about our prayers as individuals at the beginning. And, but there's something we can ask ourselves and mention when it comes to our individual prayer lives. What James says here. So ask ourselves, when is the last time you involved someone else in your prayer life? The last time you involved someone else in your prayer life. When is the last time you asked for someone to pray for you, even pray with you right there on the spot? Yeah, that's the picture in this passage, isn't it? The sick person calls for the elders, those who are especially accountable to care for him or her, but more than the elders pray, as this passage talks about. But this calling for other people's help in prayer, what a beautiful picture of faith and vulnerability. Just saying, I need you to pray for me. I need your help. I am too weak to do it myself. And I believe it is worth asking you to pray with me and for me. Prayer is individuals. But speaking as calling for elders, prayer is essential to the elders' work. Back in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles described the work they did, they said they will devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. One of the building blocks of the elders' work. So, brothers and sisters, you should know that we as elders are happy to pray for you. Especially in the way that James talks about here. If you are particularly struggling or are sick, please ask us. We are happy to pray for you. But you should know also, um, when we meet as elders, we spend pretty much the first half of our time praying for individual members of the church. This is what we do. Uh, we try to follow up with you when we pray for you. We try to let you know that we prayed for you. And we ask how else we can pray for you. And when we lead in prayer on Sunday mornings, one of our goals as elders is to model how to pray. That's just one of our goals. It's not the only goal. We want to genuinely pray. But then we look at this passage. We see the work everyone does. We see the individual. We see the elders. But we see everybody. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The big picture in these verses shows us that we are still sinners, that we still need help, and that we still need to give help as well. This applies not just to some Christians, not just to the elders, not just to the super Christians. This applies to all Christians. Here's a reminder, friends, that you do not need a leadership position in the church to make a meaningful impact on your brother or sister in Christ. You do not need a leadership position in the church. That's why in our church covenant, uh, which summarizes how God calls us to uh, live as Christians together in a church, in our church covenant, we include the promise 
that we promise with God's help to commit to the great duty of praying for one another. In the church covenant, we promise with God's help to encourage, admonish, and exhibit watchfulness over one another with wisdom and humility and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this kind of community that does what James describes here, this is a kind of community not that shows up to church for an hour on Sunday morning once or twice a month, leaves, and then goes their way. That is not that kind of community. It's a kind of community that has some depth and commitment and involvement in it. Friend, if you are a Christian, are you living out this kind of living in a church? Do you have elders? Are you in covenant community with believers who've promised to live this way with you even and you with them? Yo, members of Old Oak, Remember our, our church covenant. Remember the promises you've made. I'm going to ask you, ask myself, are we keeping our promises? Are we keeping our promises? Now here's some help in that. By no means do you have to tell everyone here all of the deepest struggles of your life. But how, can have a couple of people here who you are really close to. Have people here who you are getting help from and you are helping as well. Give others here some real, honest prayer requests. It's going to take thinking about this on your own. Give others here some real, honest prayer requests. Be ready to share with your church family the people in your life who do not have the Lord and ask them to pray for you for them. All this takes time, I know, to, to build this. But I just ask, what direction are you going? Are you headed in this direction in some way? I find examples of people who do this well. Learn from them. We are so thankful for the growth God has given to us in this area, the kind of growth that we should care about, uh, the growth for caring for one another. It's the kind of growth that we should work toward, give thanks for. But friends, we want, we want more and we want to pray for even more of this. And so for more help with this, to develop the kind of prayer and care that James calls for in this passage, just some real nitty-gritty practical help, Wednesday nights here will help you with this. I understand Wednesday nights might take some getting used to for some people. I understand it might take some extra boldness to speak up. I understand we are still growing in this. This is just one tool where we want God to build the kind of community that James and the rest of the New Testament talks about in local churches. That prays and cares for one another with some honesty and intentionality. So yeah, I get that there are some legitimate logistical issues that prevent people from coming on a night like Wednesday night. But straight up, let's be honest, we have noticed that there are some who used to come to Wednesday nights who, have given, who seem to have given up on it. My friend, would you come back? Beyond Wednesday night, though, with God's help, 
uh, let's begin making an investment to build the kind of prayer and care that marks the community James talks about here. We might have to start small in this. For some of us, honestly, friends, I say this as one who loves you, for some of us, that might mean coming to church more than once or twice a month. It might mean being willing to stay at church late, to talk and share and pray with people. It will mean building friendships outside of these walls. It's going to take some effort, some grace-fueled, God-driven effort. But friends, this is not the you're in trouble speech, okay? This is the we love you speech. We want the Lord's best for us speech. It's the speech that Jesus is still good and to be enjoyed together with his people. Brothers and sisters, this is also the speech that says not investing in Christ's community is spiritually dangerous. So let's be honest about that. So brothers and sisters, we love by praying and caring only because God first loved us and gave his son to die for us and for our sins. With God's help, let's invest in this kind of prayer and care in our individual devotional lives, in involving others in our lives, and in helping others as well. Let's pray together. Father, we, we read a passage like prayer. We, we preach a sermon about prayer and we have to be honest that we fall short in this. Now, not, not just fall short, but we have sinned in this area. God, would you forgive us and would you help us? Would you help us repent as well? And would you help us to see the goodness that is here that you have given us? that you allow us to talk to you. We ordinary, sinful people, you have forgiven and redeemed, and we could talk to you, the God of the universe, and even make requests, and you even say to have confidence in talking to you because of what Jesus has done. God, help us. Help us pray, as James talks about here. Help us to care for one another, as James talks about here. Let us leave this place being changed. That will be because of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.